Well, let's, uh, let's get into our passage today. We're in John chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible with you, a couple of people are going to make Bibles available to you. Just give them a wave and they'll, they'll hand that to you down the aisle. We're going to be in John chapter 4. We're talking about making Christ known. I don't know if you caught this, but in the, in the madness of this week's news, uh, it was reported that the Bishop of Stockholm of the Church of Sweden made the outrageous suggestion that, that one of their port city churches should remove all crosses, crosses and Christian references and create Muslim prayer space so that Muslim seafarers and Muslim immigrants would have a welcoming place to pray toward Mecca. This bishop, Eva Brun, who is controversial for many other reasons than this, said such a move would be welcoming for these visiting, as she called them, angels. Um, Friends, that's insane. It's just flat out crazy, right? Of course we welcome sinners and strangers and seekers and curious onlookers and anyone of any faith who walks in here and wants to know about Jesus. Of course they're welcome here. But it's a church. A place where we worship Jesus. You see, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, of all people. He did not say, go and do your best to get along with everybody. That's not the church Jesus is building. That's religion. And all religion kills. Religion does not give life. Jesus came to give life. Nor did Jesus say, go and build a safe harbor for the faithful to hide from the world. Circle the wagons and get comfortable. Jesus didn't say that either. Right? He said, go make disciples. The church is for people who need Jesus. The purpose of the church is to make Christ Jesus known in our communities, neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, homes, throughout the whole world. That's why we're praying for Albert this morning. Albert and Sarah and their families, they head to this country of Jordan to make Christ known. But if we're not diligent about it, honestly, we run the risk of becoming a comfortable religious club. The best way the church makes Christ Jesus known is when we, his followers, right, truly meet Jesus, experience transformation, and tell others around us about him. Let's be honest, that's a lot easier said than done. If you're, if, if you're like me, it's no problem to admit, that's not an easy thing for me to do. And I wonder why. And we're going to look at that today and, and explore what happened in John Chapter 4. John chapter 4 introduces one of the Bible's many unlikely heroes. One of the arguments for the Bible's veracity, the truth of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible, is that it's filled with so many bad people. <laughs> Seems like, like all the heroes of faith have like major flaws. If it was a made-up book, trust me, they would have made them much more heroic and much less human. But we're going to meet this Samaritan woman who can't help but introduce people to Jesus once she's encountered Jesus for herself. So I'm going to invite you to find John chapter 4. I've been debating whether or not to have you stand because it's a really long passage. But I'm going to have you stand because if I don't, Tad's going to say, let's stand. (laughs) 
And I appreciate that a lot. We're going to be in John chapter 4, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Starting, picking right up at verse 3. We're talking about Jesus when it says, He left Judea and returned to Galilee. Verse 4, He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, if you've read this before, you understand Samaria is right in the middle of Israel. He's going from south. He's traveling north. You really kind of have to go through Samaria, but Jews liked to prefer to go around Samaria because they hated Samaritans and they hated Samaria. Serious cultural implications. All right, verse 6. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Verse 9, The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who um, you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Verse 11, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? By living, she's thinking like fresh water, flowing water, right? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water and I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to get water. Now, verse 16. Go get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband. The woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. Certainly you've spoken the truth. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it here is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? And Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. Well, we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. For the, the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And just then his disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. I, Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Well, did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Verse 34, Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up, 
Look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. In verse 39, Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. And when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. And then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we've heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. We thank the Lord for his word. Let's be seated together. If you've heard me or anyone else speak on this passage before, you know the real hero is Jesus, right? I, he, he spoke to the woman, uh, you know, crossed cultural boundaries to do so. He challenged her messy life. He called her out on her bad theology. He rejected religion. It is just totally an awesome encounter. It's, a, it's just a textbook encounter. It's fantastic. So Jesus is really the hero, but we're going to look a little more closely at the woman here because she's also a hero. Because what's the amazing result of this encounter? Well, it's that practically a whole village comes to faith in Jesus. Actual faith, not chasing healings or chasing miracles or or chasing bread multiplication as sometimes happens in the Gospels. Actual, real, saving faith. I heard his words and they responded by believing in him. It says in verse 42. All because of this woman. She's a hero. She went to the people she knew and who knew her. And she invited those people, the ones that she knew, she invited them to meet Jesus. She loved them enough to witness to them. You could say it this way, that she told the people she loved and she loved the people that she told. She told the people she loved and she loved the people that she told. And I wonder if we could do the same. Uh, We do that all the time. You find a great restaurant. You tell everybody about it. You you find a great diet. This is is the season online of of diets. And I was getting groceries the other day. And every magazine is great new diet secrets. I'm like, everybody writing that has never done any of that. There's no integrity to those testimonials and those magazines. But man, if you find something that works for you, what do you do? You tell people, I found this great place to eat. I found this great new show on TV. You find it's easy to tell people when you've experienced it for yourself. Well, the same thing should be true with our relationship with Jesus. So she went to the people that she knew. Now, remember, Jesus himself didn't walk into the village and preach to them, did he? He stayed out at the at the well. And the disciples, they didn't bring back a crowd. They'd gone in to get some hummus and pita bread and, you know, they, they could have said, hey, everybody, there's this uh, really amazing rabbi you should hear. Just come with us and come hear him speak. They, they didn't do that either. They, they came back with their little sack lunch, happy to get out of that village as quickly as they could. No, the testimony of one unlikely woman who was transformed by Jesus changed an entire group. And I... We're going to be honest. Most of us, like I said, already have a hard time sharing openly and honestly about Jesus. So what was about this woman? I think there's three big kind of moves that happened for her that that changed her, that transformed her to, to share. And they need to happen for us, too, if we're going to be motivated as well. 
Um, and in case you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe what you just want to pay attention to is the way Jesus just loves this woman, just cares for her. From the moment he meets her, he cares. He's for her. Sometimes you feel like God's against you. He's out to get you. It's just not true. Look at the character of Jesus. He's on her side. He's for the woman. The water conversation got her attention. She's thinking H2O, the, the liquid stuff. Jesus is offering soul-satisfying spiritual water. Doesn't understand. Then the conversation gets kind of personal. She quickly changes the subject. She wants to talk religion. And that's, and that's a point where we start to see a new shift. The first shift is that she shifts from self-righteousness to faith. You see, verse 19, she, she wants to sort of prove how good she is, how religious she is. She says, you know, oh, you, you must be a prophet. So, well, you Jews say this and we Samaritans say that, verse 20. What, what, what is it really? That's her way of kind of proving that she's, she's pretty good. She's pretty religious. Right? She worships at the right place. That's what we call self-righteousness. And you, you might know someone who's self-righteous. There's two kinds. There's a sort of self-righteousness that's sort of haughty and, and arrogant and condescending. But there's another kind of self-righteous where we just count on being good enough to get into heaven. Or, or maybe you know someone who just doesn't really believe in heaven, but they have some hope of a favorable outcome in the afterlife because they've been pretty good. That's called self-righteousness. It could be religion. It could be a good Muslim or a good Sikh or even a good Christian. But it's saying, my good deeds, my good rituals outweigh my bad ones, and so I think I'm going to be okay. Self-righteousness. Jesus tore down religion. He broke away from it. Look at his reply in verse 21. He says, believe me, dear woman, the time's coming will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little. We Jews, we know all about it. But the time is coming, verse 23, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those kind of worshipers. You see, uh, it's not about keeping a set of rules or the right rituals or the right location. God is spirit. He's not limited to space or location or buildings. We worship directly. We worship in truth, not hiding behind effort, not hiding behind good behavior or familiar faithful rituals, but transparent and repentant before Jesus by our faith in Him. And she didn't verbalize that shift from self-righteousness to faith, but you see it in her behavior. She drops the religious jargon. She just becomes enamored with Jesus. And that's the next shift from religion to relationship. Verse 29 is so amazing. She runs back to the village and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. She didn't say, I finally know all the right things to believe. I got it all figured out. Come meet someone. That's a move from religion to relationship, a friendship with Jesus. Jesus looked into her life with no condemnation. He loved her completely and it changed her. And my question is, do you, do you actually know Jesus? Have you encountered Jesus? Do you, do, has he looked into the core of your being and, and you've known that he loves you no matter what? Have you moved from religion to friendship with Jesus? And then 
you know, again, these shifts have to happen if we're going to have, start to have some courage to share. But there's one more shift, and she, it's also in verse 29. Come see a man. You know, could this be the Messiah? That's a move from isolation to invitation. So she moves from self-righteousness to faith. She moves from religion to relationship, and she moves from isolation to invitation. Right? She'd been at the well alone, middle of the day. There's been a lot of conjecture about that. Was she rejected by the other women? Was she ashamed? We don't know. We just know that, you know, the people did listen to her when she came back. So I don't think she was quite as disparaged as we usually made her out to be. I don't think she was as, as despised. But regardless, she was alone. But the encounter with Jesus prompted this urgent and transparent witness. Right? She left the water jar. She ran back to the village. She's come, come meet a man who knows everything about me. But she just totally has dropped the mask. She's just wide open. No longer hiding. No longer isolated. She's inviting instead. And I wonder if we could do that. Could we become inviters that have a sense of urgency and a sense of transparency? Look, I'm not perfect. I, I don't have anything figured out. But I want you to meet Jesus. Because he knows everything about me and he still loves me. That's an amazing, amazing Savior. I, I, I just think it's remarkable how impacting her testimony was. In spite of her lack of knowledge or experience or training, she hadn't been to any witnessing classes. She, she hadn't been to seminary. She knew nothing, but she knew Jesus. And that's what happens when we reject self-righteousness, we reject religion, and we reject isolation. And instead, find faith and relationship, and invitation. And then there's a compelling conclusion to the story starting at verse 40. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. And they said to the woman, Now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we heard for ourselves. Now we know that he's the Savior of the world. Now this had to have been awkward for the disciples. Really. They hated Samaritans. Always had. They've been trained since they were little kids to hate Samaritans. Whatever it is, when you're in your honest of honest moments, whatever that sort of people group that you have a little bit of a hard time with, think of that. Put yourself in that shoes, and they had to sleep in Samaritan beds for a couple nights and eat at Samaritan tables for a couple of days. Oh, Jesus, really? <laughs> we really had to do this. Right? But the extra time meant that people would hear the message and respond in faith. And for us to fulfill our purpose, to make Christ Jesus known, we need to go, as Jesus commanded, to make disciples. One of the ways we do that is we invite. And when one person invites, okay, some people are better at inviting than others. Let's be honest about that. But when one person invites, it becomes a group project. We're all involved. Right? Someone had an idea to do this Bethlehem thing, and if one person had just invited but everybody else didn't set up the village, there it wouldn't have made that much of an impression, right? When one person invites, it becomes a group project. We're all involved. The way it looks here at Bethany Church is we try to make it easy for listeners to hear the gospel. It means we give up some of our own preferences for the benefit of others. It means you know, we allow some discomfort in our own life so it's better for someone else. It's like any good relationship. We look for ways to care for others and, you know, to care more about maybe that relationship 
than what actually we do. Let me give you an example. Uh, I love my sons very much, and I want to create shared experiences with them. Uh, so I took them to see Star Wars. Um, I'm not a fan of Star Wars. I actually haven't seen all the way through the other six movies. I don't understand. the. I don't get it. I honestly don't. I know. Hate me all you want. But seriously. Uh, but you know what? I love my sons. And so... Oh, Becky even gave me a t-shirt that says, I am your father. I wore it with them just to remind them. Right? So why did I go see Star Wars? Because I love my sons and I want to have shared experiences with them. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. We do, sometimes we do things that, ah, maybe it's not the preference, but it's good for the gospel. Right? So, for example, here at, at Bethany Church, we want to create environments that help other people Hear the gospel. One of, one of the challenges we have right now, and if there's a notice in your program about this, is that, is that we have a need for more people to work in the nursery. Right? So you think, ah, the nursery, that's for moms can take care of their own babies, and I've done my time, or I wouldn't know what to do, or I might drop one and break it. I don't, I don't know. Right? I'm telling you, think about it this way. Put yourself in the shoes of a young family. It's been a long week. You've had toddlers underfoot, you've got work, family, you've got all this different stuff going on, and you get to church, baby's a little fussy, and uh, you're so looking forward to just being able to have an hour where you're going to be able to sit down, hear the word, you're going to worship, you're going to just have some time with, your, you know, with the Lord and with other people, and you go and there's snow in there in the nursery. So now the baby's on your lap for the hour. How much are you going to get out of the service? Maybe you don't know the Lord yet. Maybe you're a guest. Maybe someone invited you and it's your first time hearing the gospel. And 15 minutes into the service, you just say, I, I'm going home and I'm not coming back because I, I can't do this. Now, that sounds an awful lot like a guilt trip. I'm not meaning it to be that way. I'm telling you, this is why we do this. We're making it easy for others to hear. And that mom or dad will have their chance to, they'll have their turn to, don't you worry about that. But we want to step in and make it easy for others to hear the gospel, to connect with God and to connect with one another. And I'm so grateful to the many of you who do serve and it's not even a huge commitment. It's why we want to practice great hospitality. It's why, you know, we have coffee on and when we start two services in just a couple of weeks, three weeks from now, we're going to have in, in between, we used to call it bridge time, but we call it connection time now. And in connection time, we'll be having some snacks and coffee and we want you to hang out and someone's got to prepare all that stuff and it's going to cost a little money. And why do we do that? Because it's good for the gospel. Right? We want to have great bathrooms, which we do. We want to keep them clean and we want to keep a nice building and we have a sod squad which takes great care of the grounds outside and they could use a little help. Why do we do that? Because it's good hospitality and it says... We love you enough to make it easy for you to hear the gospel. We're going to remove as many barriers as we can. And these are some places this year. I, I'm just encouraging you. Find one of these places to, to plug in. It's why we need to spend money at, at church and things like upgrades to sound and technology. It's why we use music and language that's hopefully understandable to as many people as possible. And it's relatable. It's why Jesus gave up his lunch. When the disciples came back with a bagel and some fish paste, he says, no, no, 
I'm eating. I'm doing, I'm doing the will of the Father. That's the food I'm, I'm eating on right now. It's why the disciples had to put up with two unplanned days in a Samaritan town. Making it easy so that when we invite people to hear the good news, they can actually hear the good news and respond. The Christian gospel has an agenda. We, it's not a hidden agenda. We have an agenda. Our mission is to bring people to Jesus. This is why that Bishop Eva Brune's idea is so ludicrous. We actually, our goal is to bring people to Jesus. Very often to do that, we need to bring Jesus to people. Many of you are doing that every day in your workplace, in your home, your school, your neighborhood. We bring people to Jesus and we bring Jesus to people. And here at Bethany Church, I think we're still learning to do this. I think we'll be learning this our whole lives, no matter how good at it we get. To genuinely care for, to seek out, and to reach lost people. I'm just learning this too. I feel like I'm just at square one, but we're going to learn this together. Because the goal of the Christian gospel is conversion, discipleship, that people repent and follow Jesus. And just to be clear, this is not about me trying to make the church great and, and you know, plump up numbers and do that. Listen, that's not our concern. Our concern, our job is to promote Jesus. And when we promote Jesus, Jesus will promote his church. He said, I will build my church and hell is not going to take over. Hell is not going to prevail against the church. Don't you worry about that. You promote Jesus. Jesus will promote the church. He'll take care of it. That's how it works. But to do that, we have to drop things like self-righteousness and religion and, and isolation and instead embrace faith and relationship. An invitation. And that will help us share the good news.